Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Rico, and as always, we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, this is my first show actually back uh, in a few weeks. I was on uh, vacation, as I was just telling the, the two gentlemen uh, coming on tonight on the Coach's Corner panel, and I'll introduce you to those two in just a moment. Uh, and then, of course, unfortunately, I, I brought uh, a little bit of a, a flu bug or something back with me from uh, my vacation uh, and uh, hence why I uh, canceled last week's show. So this is actually the first show of the month that I've been on, so, so uh, I'm glad to be back on the air. It's been a little bit, uh, a little bit boring here the last few weeks, not uh, doing the show. So I'm, I'm very, uh, um, very honored and, and feel great to be back on. So um, thanks for tuning in, everybody tonight, and I um, uh, hope that uh, you didn't uh, miss me too much. We've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to start off with uh, Coach's Corner, and I'll bring the guys on here, as I said, just in a moment. And then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be uh, uh, featuring my very special guest tonight, A.J. Bonner uh, from California. He's a head teacher professional at the A.J. Uh, Golf School, and we'll talk a little bit about him. He's got some very interesting topics tonight uh, that we're going to have uh, in that discussion. Um, but let me just remind everybody, of course, uh, unless otherwise mentioned or unless uh, for some reason if I have to cancel last minute, uh, I'm live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 for those of you out on the East Coast. Uh, best way to tune into the show is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or just type golf talk live up in the search key and that will take you to the show there live every Thursday. Uh, for some reason, if you can't join us live, just scroll down to the on demand section and you can listen to their uh, recorded version there anytime it's convenient for you. Or you can also go to iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, and TuneIn.com and get it there as well. Just simply, again, type in Golf Talk Live and you can find it on those social media platforms. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and other social media, LinkedIn as well. You can search under my personal name. It's Ted Odorico, and it's O-D-O-R-I-C-O is the correct spelling of the last name. Uh, or you can also search under Golf Talk Live blog on Facebook, and you can follow the show there as well as I update every week uh, who's going to be on and, and uh, especially who's going to be on the panel. So um, without further ado, let me introduce the guys, and we'll get into tonight's discussion. Uh, first up, of course, uh, he's been on the show many, many times, uh, Pete Buchanan. Uh, he's the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf LLC, which, of course, uh, as you know by now, houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, and Pete's been teaching for well over 30 years now. He's been in the business a long time and, and uh, one of my favorites on the show. Another favorite on the show as well is John Decker. He's currently teaching professional at the New Albany Country Club. And in 2015, he was named the Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, prior to that, uh, he was the head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, uh, where he worked under uh, some top 100 uh, instructors, uh, Fred Griffin, and uh, regrettably the late Phil Rogers uh, also. Uh, he authored uh, the book Golf is My Life, uh, Glorifying God Through the Game, 
And uh, he's also uh, got a great Bible study, which is included with that book as well. And he's a motivational speaker traveling all over uh, parts in the United States. Uh, so without further ado, let me welcome uh, the great guests on the Coach's Corner panel, Pete Buchanan and John Decker. Thanks, guys, and welcome. Thanks, Ted. Good to be here. Yeah, just very quickly before we start, um, John, I know you were mentioning this off air. Um, you uh, obviously worked under uh, Phil Rogers, and as you were mentioning, of course, he uh, passed away here not too long ago, uh, which was obviously very sad, not only for the industry, but for you particularly. Uh, you want to maybe share some thoughts? Uh, yes, it was. Um, I, I knew that Phil, Phil's been battling um, uh, cancer for for uh, about 10 years, uh, and um and he gave me a call um, a few weeks ago and, and, and let me know that, uh, you know, that hospice didn't, had been called in. And we, we had a prayer together, and we, we spoke, and it was really a, a great opportunity for me to tell him how, how impactful he's been in my life and how much I've learned from him and um, the time that he would take. And he taught me really what it's about to be a true golf professional. He's going to be missed, and I know – uh, when you see people like Jack Nicholas and uh, you know tweeting uh, about the impact that he had on his game, and but more than the right. tour players, it's also just the average golfers that he would take the extra time, and I really, really learned a lot to him. And I, I would not be where I am today without Phil Rogers. Right, and and as you said, not just the tour players, but also many in the in the teaching side of things as well. He impacted uh, with with his knowledge and and insight into the game. Uh, and, and he's certainly, as you said, certainly sorely going to be missed. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe mention that here on air um, before we, we get into the program. Um, all right, guys, so we're going to talk a little bit here on, uh, on Coach's Corner tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, golf schools. And, um, Pete, I'm going to let you start first, if you don't mind. And, and what I'd like for both of you to do is, um, obviously, we, we've talked many times uh, before about clinics, and there is a, a little bit of a difference um, golf schools obviously tend to be a little bit longer. Sometimes they might be two days. It could be one day, but a lot of times they tend to be two or three day, uh, golf schools. Um, normally not, uh, much longer than that. Uh, maybe special circumstances, but normally two or three day golf schools and they can encompass quite a bit. So I want to, Pete, uh, if you were going to put together, uh, uh, maybe a two or three day golf school, what are some of the components that you'd want to make sure, uh, that you were covering it in that? And then John, I'm going to get you to do the same thing as well. Okay. One of the things that I always make sure that is included is a session that talks about ball flight cause and effect and getting the, mm-hmm. the participants to understand the relationship between the club and the ball. And I think that's very important that they, they get and see that and understand from, you know, a simple ball flight standpoint, you know, what the club is doing to cause that and, and the effects of it. But not only that, uh, from that standpoint, how do we go about making changes uh, in, in the simplest, most fashion that will change what's going on with the flight so we can get directly to the problems and really focusing on, you know, understanding why they do what they do and how to correct it. And then from there, moving those principles into each area of the game from full swing and, and you know, the other areas. Um, but also, too, right. making sure that we include not only – you know, sessions on how they're going to hit it, but also sessions on how they're going to play and perform it. And, you know, making sure that we, we cover some mental aspects and, and uh, some of the playing components out on the golf course. And uh, I always like to touch on equipment too, because it's important. So I make sure that, you know, just from a, a generic standpoint to cover at least those areas 
um, from the beginning, and then you can detail into that, you know, as you go. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Um, you know, John, we, we've obviously seen uh, many, many uh, different forms of golf schools out there in the industry. Some might specialize in a certain aspect of the game. Uh, others might be more generic, as, as Pete just mentioned. Uh, what about you? If, if, if you're putting together a maybe a two- or even a three-day golf school, what are some of the key components that you're going to have in there, and, and why would you uh, select those? Well, one of the things that I would really want to emphasize to the students, I want it to be balanced. In other words, I want to cover an equal amount of full swing to short game as far as the timing goes and cover because, you know, the short game, there's a lot of aspects to the short game. And then the full swing, you're, got, you're, you're going to have video. And as Pete was mentioning, you know, you start talking about ball flight and uneven lies and all the things that you'll, you'll deal with, with that. But it's very important, the emphasis that I try to really make sure in, in every golf school is I tell my students, I may not get you to – I may not be able to get you to swing like a tour player – but I can get you to set up like a tour player. And, and so that is one of the things that I think that is the most undertaught. When I watch a lot of young teachers, they go right into the swing without addressing the setup. And, and I, I really uh, spend a lot of time. And if it's two or three days of working on someone with their grip and their ball position and, and all those things, because when you make those changes, it's sometimes like pulling teeth. So I really emphasize that and, and then try to make sure that it's balanced. And, and I want the students to understand that, the short game is actually probably more important than their full swing. Right, and, and we're going to get into that in just a second. And, and let me ask you both guys, um, and, and we'll reverse it, John. Uh, take a deep breath. I'm going to come back to you first this time, and then, uh, Pete, I'll let you uh, respond as well. Um, but, you know, John, you, you touched on uh, a, a very key point here, and really um, with the setup and, and it, how important it is to really build that foundation first. And I think obviously it's going to depend on the level of player that you're uh, inviting to the school, obviously more seasoned players. Um, you may be able to get around that step a little bit. It's certainly good. You know, Jack Nicholas, as you pointed out earlier, uh, you know, always um, sort of revisited uh, his setup every season. You know, when he was getting ready, uh, of course the seasons are much longer now, but when he was playing, you know, they were off for, for several months. And when he came out there uh, bright and, and early in the new year, uh, he always made a point of, of working through the setup and getting the, the basic fundamentals uh, in check again before he went out and started playing tournaments. So my question to you, John, is, is obviously uh, we want to make sure before we get into any other parts of the golf uh, game or swing that we build a solid foundation first, correct? That is correct. Um, when I look at any, any golf swing, and I don't care whether it's someone that's on the PGA Tour or a beginner, I always start from the ground and I work up. I look at where their feet are in relationship to the ball. The ball position and their distance from the ball is where I start. And then I look at their knee flex, and then I look at their hips, and then I look at their shoulders, and I look at their grip. So that would be kind of the, the order. Now, their grip is obviously very important, but if you're standing five inches too far from the ball, your grip's not going to matter. You know, you've got to get the ground first. Um, that's yep. really uh, the essence. Uh, and then you have other things. You have the tilt. You have their weight distribution. I do a lot of balance tests. A lot of times when I see students set up to the ball, they get their weight way too far back in their heels. So I'll have them, you know, really emphasize, like, standing on a board on the balls of their feet, making sure that they have their weight distributed properly. Um, so the, the setup takes a lot of time uh, because – and it's very difficult because you can teach that uh, you know, in a in a studio, or you can teach that on the lesson tee, but then we all know what happens. You tee off, 
and you go on the first hole and you have a side hill lie, and then on the second hole you have a downhill right. lie. And, and it's like they're like, well, we didn't cover this, you know. That we, you know, and so they're trying and, you, and making all those adjustments. You know, it's it's very difficult. So you have to go. You have to make sure and cover that because the it's. I, I, I look at you know, um, like when we all learned how to drive uh, to drive a car, it was really kind of easy when I sat in the classroom. But when I got out on the interstate, it was a whole other. It yeah. was a whole other thing. And that's the way golf is, and so. Teaching students how to adjust to their conditions and their lives in the setup is is just as difficult as teaching them the grip because uh, their their tendencies are to uh, want to help the ball off the ground on a downhill lie, for example. So those are those right. are things that I try to emphasize, and 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 it takes a lot of time. It's not something you can just brush through in 15 minutes. Right. Well said. And, and Pete, just to, to add a little bit to that, I think the other thing too why it is important is there's really no sense in making changes uh, to somebody's golf swing and that if their setup isn't sound to begin with. Obviously, there might be some tweaks along the way that you might have to make, but if the person's not set up properly to the ball, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to start working on other aspects or other areas of their game until you get that in check first, correct? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at cause and effect, I mean, most of the time you're going to find that the, the errors that they make are rooted in how they set up to it. You know, um, I've always said a lot of times with amateurs, they miss hit it before they ever hit it because they put themselves in an address where they can't hit it in the first place. So you have to get them set up properly to begin with. And if you're using, you know, a a basis of having them understand the dynamics between the club and the ball and how that relates to them and their setup, then it makes it easy to get them into those address positions and changes because it's going to directly influence what's going on with the ball. So, yeah, definitely the, the address has to come first. Uh, that's really, really important in, in order for them to not only repeat, but also to, you know, start correcting the ball flight that they have. Yeah, and, and, and again, because you're, you're dealing with, um, again, either a two- or, or a three-day school, that's certainly going to give you more than enough time uh, to be able to work on that without cutting in too much of your, your, uh, your golf school. And even with some of the more seasoned players, um, John and Pete, you know, I think it's good to, at the very least, to revisit that area right from the get-go before you continue on. Because people, you know, they've sat maybe on the sidelines for a few months, especially, you know, in the winter months, and they get out and they think, okay, I'm going to go to this golf school and kind of get a tune-up, if you will, and work on some game. Um, but they've been sitting on the sofa or the, the recliner for a couple of months and really haven't worked on some of the fundamentals except for the night before they were going to the school. So, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of dust has accumulated and so forth. Um, Pete, I'm going to let you uh, take a deep breath, and then I'm going to back uh, to you and then, and then John. Um, John actually alluded okay. this a little bit, uh, specifically about the short game. Um, what short game skills uh, would be a priority and why, and be specific? Uh, two for me, I think, are, are very, very important um, putting at obviously because you know so much time is is neglected in putting for a lot of the players and I also like to, to to really look at pitching as well because to me pitching can be a good basis for what's going on with their full swing as well um, and so those fundamentals that they're going to have in, in a pitch shot can lead into what's going on with the rest of their game but um uh, you know, I really like to emphasize putting and pitching as, as two things that I really like to cover. I mean, chipping is there as well. I mean, obviously they're going to have to have those. Um, 
But I, I right. really think in, in my experience and looking down the line with, with all the players that we had and all the schools that I did, you know, when they got out to play, they could, they, they could always chip it pretty well. But, you know, the, the little longer shots around the greens and then the putts themselves, I think, were the ones where they needed more work than anything else. And when you really think about it, I mean, most of the amateurs are going to leave the ball further away from the green. And so they're going to be pitching more than they're going to be chipping. And so I right. think that's a good fundamental piece that they need to have. And, you know, and then they've got to be able to roll it properly. And I know that sounds funny, but, you know, if you can roll the ball properly, uh, you can putt much, much better. And it's, it's not only the, the amateurs, but, uh, you know, I talk to tour guys this way too. I mean, you've got to roll the ball the right way. And it's really important that you yep. set up to get that done. So, so I, you know, putting and pitching are two very, very important short game pieces for me. Yep. And, and also, too, you know, speaking of role, you know, something, too, that a lot of people, um, you know, especially some of our newer golfers that aren't, haven't been out to the course uh, a lot yet, don't realize that, you know, depending on what time of the day, I mean, this happens obviously on tour as well. Um, you know, the greens get a little bumpy. You've had people walking on it. You get little undulations that, you know, you don't normally see to the naked eye. Um, but when that ball starts rolling along, so the, the more true of a role you can get to start with, that's going to help you uh, go a long way. And I think that if you sort of come out of the gate and you're all over the place um, with your putter, um, you're going to just compound some of the issues that, that you're going to face with normally. So, um, John, I, I agree with Pete, I think, uh, in his analogy of the short game. I mean, this is obviously an area I think that we would all agree on is, is, should be a dominant area in any uh, professional's golf school because that's really where we score. Um, and I, I agree with what he, he stated, you know, chipping, uh, chipping is certainly something that we want to work on, but we don't really want to have a high percentage of our time spent on chipping. I think pitching, if they can't get that approach shot to the green, uh, you know, dialed in properly, then they're going to really not have a lot of chances to, to, to score well. So, um, would you agree with that analogy? And what percentage do you think when it comes to the short game versus maybe other areas of the game would you want to have in your golf school? Is that, uh, you know, a 30%, 40% of the time that you're going to spend with your students working on the short game? Well, I try to spend half my time on the short game uh, and half the time on the full swing. I, probably, I try to be pretty consistent with that. Um, and then pitching is going to make up a real high percentage of it. Putting, um, right. you know, I always, I always tell my – I mean, the average golfer, if you're over the uh, an 18 handicap, you're not, gonna, you're not supposed to hit any greens in regulation. Uh, and if you are hitting greens in regulation and you're over an 18 handicapper, then you're not a very good putter. So what I try to emphasize to, to students is the majority of you are going to hit your tee shot out there. You're going to come up probably short of the green, and you're going to have some sort of shot between – five and 35 yards and and if you can get that next shot within you know eight to ten feet of the hole you are going to really lower your scores fast uh, but if that next shot goes screaming over the green and you've got now a downhill pitch or you chunk it and it goes 10 feet uh, now you're going to run your score up and 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 I think Pete you know can agree that we we see that all the time with with the average golfer um, and then yeah. you know the pitching is even the tour players have days when they're just not on. And, and instead of, you know, hitting, a, you know, 15 greens, they might only hit nine or ten greens in regulation. And they go in a few bunkers. And, and But it's mainly the pitching. And that's the, the area that 
if you've got that part down, then you're going to do really well. But what I also love about pitching is is that when you work on pitching, uh, it first of all helps you with your touch, which is going to help you in putting, but it helps you in the sequence with your full swing. So I think Pete had talked right. about that as well. And to me, that's why I really think that that's one of the, my favorite ways to start any kind of lesson is to, is, uh, most students want to reach in there and grab a longer club. I grab their sand wedge or their lob wedge, depending on what they have, and I say, I want you to hit a, hit a, you know, to that 30-yard target right there, and I want to see how you do with that. And I can learn a lot about what's going on with their grip, their ball position, all those things, their tendencies, um, their swing path, their, their, the depth of their divots, just by watching them hit a pitch shot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think the other thing, too, and this sort of leads me into to the next question here, uh, is, you know, how much we'll call this range time or, um, you know, even I don't want to use classroom because really most nowadays don't do a lot of uh, classroom uh, component to it. But how much range time or practice time as opposed to on course? Obviously, we want to get them out on the golf course and uh implementing some of the things that they're learning here because you know as you uh, both have alluded to many many times uh, including tonight uh it you know it, it's great in the simulator or it's great uh you know inside um or even on the on the range but now when we get out in the golf course the lies are not always going to be perfect so uh john again take a deep breath i'm coming back to you and then pete how much time do you think given that you've got maybe two to three days in a golf school do you want to allocate to working on fundamentals, working on some of the techniques, uh, as opposed to actually getting out in the golf course and implementing some of the things that you're working on? Well, when I was at Grand Cypress, we were very fortunate because we had three academy holes there, and they were a par three, par four, and a par five. And these were legitimate holes that we had all the tour players from Payne Stewart to Seve, all these guys would practice on them, and they were real holes. So when we did our golf schools, we could simulate really any shot that you would see out on the golf course. Uh, working at a private club, we have a nice short game area. We have a great tee area and a building and everything. But we have to actually get out on the golf course. So I try my best with every one of my students to dedicate several, you know, one or two lessons uh, throughout the summer at a bare minimum to say, hey, you know, we're going to meet here at 10 o'clock. I'm going to have the cart. And for one hour – we're going to find a, a, you know, a couple of holes out there where nobody's playing. And uh, we're fortunate we have 27 holes, so we always have an off nine. Right. And I always try to go to that right. off nine. And I'll just, like today I had one, and I went to number seven. And we started on seven, and we played seven, eight. We skipped eight, played seven, nine, and went to one. So it was just a, it was a way for us to hit different shots um, and, and uh, you know, work on course management and that type of stuff. So, but I, I think it's, it is one of the most important things. It, a lot of times it depends on the facility and, uh, you know, how busy you are. You're not going to do that on a, on a Saturday morning. But, uh, you know, during the week and during the late afternoons, it's, it's ideal. Right. And, and, Pete, what about you? Again, obviously you, you have to consider, uh, as uh, John just alluded to, you have to consider the um, – facility and and access to 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 the holes obviously uh you know certain days are going to be busier than others and certain times of the day are going to be busier um but you know you're you've put together a golf school you want to take some of those things that you've been working on uh maybe the first you know couple of hours or hour or so now you want to put it into practice uh what's your formula as far as how you 
allocate things as far as time on the course and uh, practice time on the tee? Well, you know, having done so many different programs over the years, you know, I found, you know, from a practice standpoint that about about four hours is enough um, as far as they're, you know, on the range doing work. Um, and then you've, you've got to take them onto the golf course from there. I, I think, you know, about four hours is enough to work and whether they're going to stop and grab a snack and take off. But what I like to do on the golf course, you know, I like to split the days, you know, basically in half. They don't have to play for four hours, but I like to get them out there. But I also like to tell them that, you know, you don't have to just play straight golf. I mean, we've been working on situations and different shots while you've yep. been on the range. Let's work on those same shots when we get on the course. So we're not going to tee off on this hole. We're going to drive up to, you know, 100 yards, and we're going to play in from here. You know, and obviously you got to have spacing and things like that that you're going to do. But I like them to, to go out and work on the shots they've been working on. You know, if there's a slope on the, on the hole, uh, you bet we're going to go over to that slope and we're going to hit a few balls. You know, we're going to make sure that we look at uneven lies, look at different stances. And so, you know, really playing more situation golf than just playing holes, per se, as, as you would normally right. play, but just trying to get them to, to go out and practice the things that they've been doing. It's, it's hard to go out and practice the full swing uh, on the golf course after you've just had some lessons. I mean, it's hard to do, but you can really work yeah. on doing some short game and some, some different aspects of, of the different shots and different uh, situations you can put yourself in while you're on the course. And that's really what I would try to emphasize more situational play after the instruction than just playing straight up golf. Yeah. And I, uh, I concur with that as well, Pete. I think that one of the mistakes that a lot of golfers make um, when they get out on the golf course is they're not factoring in that the last hour or so that they've been practicing on the, on the tee uh, or the, the range they're not going to see those perfect conditions out in the golf course. And most people, and I'm sure we've all seen it, that we see warming up before a round, they're not practicing, uh, you know, shots that they're actually going to be faced with. They're hitting, you know, every tee is tee or every, you know, drive is teed up, uh, every uh, wedge shots, you know, perfect. They're raking it uh, over and, and just hitting shot after shot. Um, you know, I like to send people down to, uh, a part of the range where there's a little bit of an angle, a little bit of a slope, and, and have them hit some shots out on the range, uh, whether it be a downhill or a side hill or both, uh, you know, lies. And I think that's important as well to, to mix it up a little bit. So let me ask you guys this, um, and uh, uh, Pete, uh, I'm going to come back with you here on this. We want to get them out on the golf course as, as quick as possible uh, in any situation getting them working on some of the different things that we've talked about. Um, but more importantly, we want to get them playing the game and understanding from a strategic standpoint. Is that something that we need to factor into the golf school as well? Not just how to uh, put the club face on the ball properly, how to set up and grip and all of these different things that we, uh, different fundamentals, but a little bit of strategy. Do we need to work that in the school as well? Is that a, a, a key imp- uh, component? Oh, without question. I mean, one of the things that I always like to do when, when we would send the, the, myself or the other staff that I had out on the golf courses, we would always look at playing performance and, and have them describe how they would play the hole before they play it and what they're looking for and, and the types of things. And then we tell them what we're looking at. And invariably, you're going to get different answers. You know, um, I'm looking at, you know, there's bunkers out there. How far are they off the tee? Should I not hit a driver so I don't get in them? Um, you know, 
that type of thing. So we like to look at, you know, situations that are out there, um, how you perform on the golf course and not necessarily hitting shots, but let's look at the hole. Let's look at what we're up against and let's try to figure out the best way to play this hole based on what your tendencies are and what you do. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think out on the golf course, it's more about teaching them how to play, you know, obviously play to their strengths, but also how to play the holes and how they're made up. You know, because I think so many times when we were out there looking at it, we talk about the things we're looking at. And I said, I never thought of that before, ever. You know, right. So, you know, it's a, I think it's a, a, a neat thing. Obviously, you got to have some capacity to hit it, obviously, which, you know, hopefully when, you, sure. when you've got them out there, they're doing that. But I, I think it's more of a, you know, just a total, uh, you could talk about mental golf and getting them prepared. But I think situations are what I like to look at. Look at the holes. Here's what you're up against. You know, you've got all water on the left and six miles on the right. Uh, pretty good idea. You don't want to miss this left. You know, so <laughs> there's things that, you know, right. they, they probably wouldn't think about. And I think a lot of times, too, they're surprised that, you know, you're not hitting driver here. No, it, it doesn't do me any good. You know, I'd rather hit, you know, three wood or, or and maybe a hybrid so I don't get in those bunkers up there. You know, I'm trying to play to my strength right. so I can score better. So it's all about giving them the situation and having them look at the holes and, and hopefully give them an idea of how to play the hole um, on, a, on a better, more, uh, I guess, a stronger position for how they are and play to their strengths and, and show them how they can use their strengths to really score well on the golf course. Right. And, and I think, Pete, you know, their decision-making ability, sometimes, you know, you might have a golfer that's been playing for 25 years but makes poor decisions, and they might be able to hit the ball well. They might strike the ball. Uh, they might putt, you know, like a like a dream. But they make very poor decisions out in the golf course. I mean, John, we've seen this with some of the best players in the world uh, that certainly have no issues when it comes to ball striking. But they get out in the golf course, and it's like you're scratching your head, thinking, "What's this? What's this player thinking about? Why did he do that? What you know? What was going through his head?" And uh, to give you a good example of of some good course strategy now he i know he didn't win the open but tiger uh was a good example this past weekend um you know he was pulling long irons out on almost every tee uh certainly he did hit his driver but uh, you know he was adapting to the course conditions and knew what his strengths were and was using some strategy so these are things uh john i think you would agree as well as pete that uh that they need to do and what uh, what are your thoughts there, John? Well, uh, you know, there's uh, I, I like a lot of what what Pete said, and I agree with with most of you know with, with really with everything he said. One of the things that I start out with is making sure that the student knows what side of the tee box to tee off on. That's the first one of the first questions I ask them is, uh, and I give them I walk up and I say I'll give you three choices. You can tee it up on the right in the middle or on the left, and, and depending on the hole. And then I go through uh, the times that you want to tee it up on the left, and I want to talk, I talk about the times you want to tee up on the, on the right. Um, so that's one of the first things. And then it, taking the trouble out of play, you know, avoid, whether it's water. You know, I talk about the priorities. The number one priority is to take out of bounds uh, and water out of play. And then bunkers would be after that, and you know, and trees. And so, um, you know, just that, I think that is a, a very important aspect because I see so many of my students 
they'll get up and a lot of times I'll let them do this. I won't say anything because I want to, I want them to learn from their mistake and they'll tee up on the wrong side of the tee box. They'll hit a really nice shot, but they'll be lined up right in the middle of the trees and they'll hit and they'll go, see, I always go on the trees on this hole. And then I, and then that gives me a real good opportunity to say, well, that's because you're teeing up on the wrong side of the tee box. And I'll show, show them, you know, how to, to make the fairway wider by picking the proper side. And that's what good player, good players very, very rarely just tee up right in the middle. And that's where most people want to gravitate. I want to get in the middle, but that's really, when you yeah. do that, you're make, you're cutting the fairway down in half when you do that. So I try to make the fairway as wide as possible. And then you factor in the winds and things. And that's another thing that, that most students never factor in is wind. And um, that just yeah. can change. It can change your club selection. can change where you tee off on the tee box. It can change your strategy, whether you're going to go for it, whether, you know, you get up on a, on a par five that you go for in two all the time. Uh, if you're a better player and you're into the wind, you might as well just, you could hit a three wood off the tee if you had to, because now it's a three shot hole. Just play it three shots instead of trying to, to do something that you're not capable of. So those are the type of things that I go over, you know, before we even play the hole. And then as we get out in the hole, then it's just situational. Okay, that didn't work or this did work. Now let's go from here. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, a lot of players that, you know, we work with, these are things that they really need to, to spend a lot of time working on. Uh, we see, you know, too many um golfers going to the to the range as, as i mentioned earlier and and just sort of hitting ball and after ball and not really putting much thought into it not really working on some of the areas that they're struggling with um you know they the only thing that they want to do is well i'm not hitting my driver well this week so i'm going to work on my driver but then they get out in the golf course and their putting isn't uh, isn't sound their pitch shots you know they're, they're lucky if they hit three greens in regulation let alone nine or, or ten or eleven and they don't understand why they're not improving. So this is where, uh, as both of you had mentioned, they need to, to learn to, to play to their strengths. And they can certainly work on some of the areas they're struggling with. Um, and these are things, obviously, that you, you're going to be talking to them about in their golf school. Um, John, I'm going to back up to you here for a second, and, and then Pete. Um, John, I know you're familiar with this uh, saying, obviously, uh, being a, a, a very spiritual man. But um, we reap what we sow. And... Given that uh, statement, what I want to ask you is this. What should our participants expect from attending uh, a, a, a golf school that you may be putting on? And what should, they, what should their realistic expectations be? What should they expect to bring to it? And what should they expect to take away from this? And what's their part? I know this is a multifaceted question here. Um, and this is where I, I come in with the, the reap what you sow, is what do they need to put into it if they expect to get something out of it? That's a great question because um, a lot of it, I, I would start out by saying the golf schools that I've done, I'll have guys that are really good players. Some guys will be, you know, one or two or three handicap players. I have a lot of mid, I would say anywhere from 15 to 20 handicappers, but I also have a lot of new players. I mean, beginners, people who have never, you know, held a club before. And so it, depending on which one of those categories they fit in, to, then you're obviously your expectations and your goals can, can change based on that, first of all. 
Um, the, the first thing that I want them to do, and I explain to every student I teach, is I don't care that you understand the golf swing. I want you to understand your golf swing. So you don't need to be able to right. lead a, a PGA uh, biomechanical class at the end of this session. But what I do want you to understand is when your ball is slicing to the right or if you're pulling it or if you're hitting it fat or thin, whatever your problem is, is that you understand, okay, th- even though, and, and I tell them, when you leave this golf school, you're probably still going to do this at times. I mean, you're going to fall back in these habits, but at least now you're going to know what it is that you're, that you can do or, or what it is that you need to do to fix it. So I want them to understand it first. The second thing is I teach every one of my students at least one drill. Most of my students, I'm giving two or three drills and I always tell them, this mm-hmm. is your medicine. This is when you're, when you're practicing, <laughs> this is the way, this is your medicine. You, when you leave here, you've got to do this every single time you go to the driving range you need to spend at least 10 minutes hitting balls doing this drill, whatever that drill is. And then I always show them their swing on video so that I can say, here's the x-ray. Here is the problem in, with this is why you're doing it. Again, you don't need to understand the whole golf swing, but this is why your ball slices to the right because of these, and I, you know, I show them on video. And so I think if they understand, they understand it, and then they, they um, have drills to work on, um, I feel like that that right there is a good foundation. But the the thing that really is most important is that they practice. Because I, if they're spending, you know, some of these golf schools are thousands and thousands of dollars, it makes no sense to spend right. all that money and then go home and then never – and then just say, okay, I'm going to go out and play golf, you know, on Saturday and see how I do. You need to practice it. And the more you put into it, just like you said – you know, you reap what you sow. The more you put into it, yeah. the more you're going to get out of it. So I think that, that would be kind of in a golf school. That I would want to cover that with all my students. Right. Well said. Um, Pete, obviously the same to you, and, and I just want to say this uh, before I, I let you um, answer. You know, it's not just what they do when they leave the golf school but it's the preparation coming to the golf school as well. We want them to uh, be ready and, and receptive to, to what we're going to be discussing and what we're going to be teaching, um, but they've also got to put some effort into it ahead of time. There's nothing worse, as, as John just alluded to, um, Pete, when a student comes in and they've shelled out, you know, let's say two, $3,000, whatever it may be, uh, to come to a golf school. They've done absolutely nothing to, to prepare for it, and then come out and wonder why, you know, they haven't seen any improvement. It's no different than going for a job interview. When you go for a job interview, you prepare for it. Uh, at least you should, if you want to have any realistic expectation of, of uh, successfully uh, obtaining that position. So Pete, what do you, what do you think uh, as far as that's concerned? I know I'm sure you agree a lot with John, but uh, what are your thoughts there about not only preparing uh, and, and working after the school, but maybe preparation as well coming into the school? I think I try to let everybody know when, when we're going to put on a school, just a few things that, they, you know, they need to be aware of before they come, you know, mm-hmm. just to what you're alluding to, the different things that they can do yeah. to prepare themselves. Um, you know, I always found it, you know, really funny when I, we always knew this on a Sunday night, we'd meet somebody for the first time and you shake their hand and it's, you know, just as soft as can be. And you're like, oh, this one's going to need a lot of Band-Aids <laughs> before the end of the week because, you know, that hands are going to get beat up. You know, so they have to right. be prepared and understand that they're going to hit a lot of shots. But, 
you know, what John said, I think is, is, is dead on. I mean, you know, to me, getting them to understand what they do, why they hit the shots they hit, but most importantly, how to fix it, and then a set of drills to take with them to enhance it, I think is really what they're there for. I mean, obviously, you know, they're, they want to play better golf, but, you know, you can't play better golf until you put the time in and work on the things that are going to make you play better golf. And so, you know, first and foremost, they have to understand why they do what they do. And as John alluded to, it's only their swing they have to worry about. This is what you do. Right. This is why you hit the shots you hit. You don't have to worry about, you know, your your spouse or anybody behind you. And, and I, I would always have a caveat there. No spouses can teach each other. That's, Meg, you can't do that anymore. Right. So you got to leave each other alone. No. Uh, because you might be total opposites <laughs> and you might ruin each other. That's what you're trying trying to say. But, you know, to me, it's really getting them uh, a good understanding of, of why they do what they do. And if they can walk away with just that, um, they're going to be miles better down the road. And then if they'll practice a little bit and put into use what they learned in the drills that they can take with them, you know, it's, it's, I like to tell them, I said, your improvement's unlimited. It's up to you now. You've got the tools to do it. How much you improve is up to you. You have to go put in the work, but uh, now you have everything you need to continue to improve and make your game as good as you want to make it. Yeah. Um, well said, Pete. You know, one of the things, too, that, that I think is very frustrating, and I, and I think we probably all collectively would agree with this, is unfortunately the mindset of today's golfer is instant gratification. And what I mean by that is they, they expect immediate results uh, without putting uh, any or, or very little effort into it, which is you both um, very eloquently touched on uh, here just uh, a moment ago. This is an area that I think as a golf instructor is becoming more and more difficult. And I want to very quickly get both of your thoughts. And then I have one final question for, uh, for you, I think, which is uh, hopefully a fun question. Um, but uh, John, what do you think about that? This is something I think that a lot of students coming now um, are, are expecting sort of that instant gratification. They want, you know, they want to get the results now. Um, but as you both talked about, you know, they're not always willing to put that work in. How do we combat that? What, what's uh, your solution to that? Well, I try to emphasize to them that a lot of people, their only experience with golf is what they've seen on television. And I tell them, listen, there is a, there's a camera on every hole. And I said, these guys are really, and girls are really good. And whenever they, are, they either show, there's three things they're going to show. They're going to show all of the really great shots. They're going to show the guys who hit the ball in the water and they've got one foot in the water and one foot out of the water and they hit the spectacular shots or the bunker shots and they're going to show Tiger Woods. So they're going to show those three things pretty much all day long. And so what I try to right. emphasize to them is that if you go out and you just watch the average tour player play or if you go sit on a hole at a tour event, you're not going to see every one of their shots up by the pin and, and make every putt. You're going to see guys make bogeys and double bogeys, especially on the difficult holes. So the, it's a much more difficult game. I try to give them some stats about, you know, proximity to the hole. A lot of them think that the tour players hit every shot, you know, three feet from the hole, and they think that they make every putt outside of 10 feet. So I try to give them some, some things that make them, and, and they're usually very surprised when I, when I tell them, you know, a tour player from 100 yards is, is averages about 15 feet. They don't hit it five feet, and they don't hit it 40 feet you know, 15 to 20 feet is kind of the average of where they're going to be hitting it. So 
Um, that, I think that's one way because uh, the game is very difficult, as we as we all know. But the best way to to uh, really, I think, with the gratification part, I think is I think in the short game is one thing because I can't get every single student to hit the ball 300 yards, but I can get them to learn how to to putt and chip. And so I try to make sure that the the some of that stuff doesn't get glossed over, and and where all we're working on is the long stuff. So I really want to try to yeah. give them some stuff where they can all do it and they can all hit a three or four foot putt, you know? So, um, th- that's, that's, uh, that's what I try to do to make a very difficult game as easy as possible. Yeah. And that's a great point, John. Um, I think introducing those stats, I know, I think a lot of them, uh, a lot of the professionals are doing that now. I know, um, uh, Pete, I know you've done that and, and, uh, uh, some of the others that have been on the panel, I've, uh, heard mention as well that they try to introduce some of the stats of the tour pros. So just to put things in, in sort of a reality check, if you will, because I think you're right, uh, John, as you said, you know, what we see on TV is, is sort of the watered down, uh, you know, version of, of the actual rounds that are going on. We're not seeing all the, the sort of the meat and potatoes, if you will, in, in a, a regular tour round. Um, we're seeing just sort of the specialty shots and, and all the great uh, heroic shots that we see. And occasionally you might throw uh, a ball in the water or, or a deep bunker or something just to throw a little excitement in there. But it basically is very watered down to what's actually going on in the golf course. Um, Pete, what about you as, as well? You know, we're, we're dealing with this instant gratification uh, society now. Everybody wants everything now. What do we do to combat that? Well, a lot of times I'll ask them, you know, throughout their experience and, and what they've done, what their jobs are, um, if they've played any other sports, you know, what was the time frame to get where you were pretty good at it? And at your job, how long have you been working at your job to feel like you're pretty sufficient at it? And, you know, the answer is never, well, I started yesterday and I'm really good today. Um, you know, so they start to understand that it takes a little bit of time to, to get, you know, efficient at what you're doing. And so golf is no different. Um, you know, you can have, you know, the short shots, like John mentioned, you can get them pretty good at them. Um, you know, not always uh, can you get them to hit it a long way. You know, it's funny that that, that was mentioned because my son asked me the other day, he said, hey, when you were younger, were you one of the longest hitters? I said, you know, that never came up when I was a kid. All we were trying to do was beat each other right. in score. Nobody really worried about how far it went. I said, and today it's all about how far they hit it. You know, and, and scoring gets pushed off to the very last. So to me, I mean, the indicator on how good you are is what you score. And so I, I try to get them to emphasize, you, you know, the, the scoring shots are really important. The short shots are really important. It takes a little bit of time to, to get, you know, proficient at these. But I said the more proficient you can get at anything inside of 50 yards, the better you're going to score. And so, you know, try to just, just give them an understanding of, you know, golf's no different than any other aspect of, of life or anything else that you do. I mean, if you really want to get proficient, you got to spend a little time at it. And the, the key is you have to spend the right time. Just hitting balls yeah. isn't going to do you any good. You got to you got to specifically be working on things that are going to help enhance. So if you really want to get there quicker, you got to really practice like you you're supposed to practice and work on the things that you need to work on and the things that we're going to tell you to work on. So that can help speed that up. If you're, if you're practicing, you know, the right things to practice. Right. And as we've said many times on the show, we want them to practice with purpose. Um, you know, just getting Absolutely. out there hitting balls, 
uh, is not going to, uh, you know, uh, for certainly 99.9% of the golfers out there is not going to really uh, help them uh, all that much. Uh, they need to have some some purpose behind their practice. And if you look at all of the uh, the best players, I mean, you know, everybody always says they want to be more like so-and-so they see on TV or that person over here or that tour player. Well, they need to do what that tour player does, and that is practice with a purpose um, and not just, you know, raking and hitting golf balls all the time. Um, very quickly, guys, I got one final question, which is not really related to, to what we've been talking about, but I thought it was kind of an interesting question. Um, and, and uh, John, I'm going to let you, uh, or actually, no, Pete, I'm going to back up with you, so take a deep breath. Um, if you could only teach one area of the game for the rest of your career, what would it be? Oof. What a what a question that is. Um, uh-huh. You know, to me, um, probably in, in this stage of the game, um, I would probably stick with the full swing. Um, I've I've taught all the all the other areas. I think there's a lot of gratification in it, um, getting them to really understand the full shots and and uh, being able to to, to hit the, the the full swings and and uh, you know really get um, really get proficient at it. So. I would probably tend to lean toward, you know, doing the full swing. I, I mean, lately that's that's what I do a lot of, even though I've taught all the areas of the game for a long, long time. And, you know, I've, I've spent some time really drilling down and, and really picking the full swing apart to, to try to make it more efficient, uh, more simple, and more productive. So I think for me at this stage of the game, that's probably where I would I would stick with uh, – to stick with the full swing in general and, and not just the swing itself, but the understanding right. of the full swing itself, you know, the cause and effect, what the ball does, you know, how everything moves. So I think for me, that would be, that, that would probably be something that, that uh, I would stick with, you know, I know the rest of it's important, but um, I just think right now I, that's, that's probably what I would do. Very interesting. Um, John, what about you? You've, uh, you've, uh, just found out that you're going to teach uh, one area of the game for the rest of your career. Uh, what would that be? What would your choice be? Mine would be pitching. Uh, when you said that, I immediately, that's the first thing that came into my head because I know that if I always tell students, you know, your, your pitch shot is kind of like your defense. I said a, a football team has, if it has a good defense or a basketball team has a good defense, they're going to be in every game, and there are going to be days that I don't care how good your full swing is. There are going to be days when you're missing it, and and the key is the days that that when you're on it doesn't really matter, but when you're off, having this this shot, and because there's so many shots around the green that you get, and pitching is such a there's you can get so creative. You've got rough, you got tight lies, uneven lies, you know, high, low, medium, all the different different pitch shots. I I, I would do that because. The better you are pitching, really, the less putting you have to do. And then you, by getting, you know, obviously you're going to get closer to the hole, you're going to score better. But the sequencing of that is what's going to translate to the full swing. So the pitching, working on your pitching will actually help you in your full swing. Right. Very interesting. Uh, I like that. Uh, Some interesting choices there, guys. Um, well, as always, I want to give both of you an opportunity. First off, I want to thank both of you for coming on tonight and and, uh, filling in. Uh, for the uh, regular coaches corner this week. Uh, and uh, I know last week was actually your week for the two of you, but I uh, appreciate you stepping up and, and filling in this week. Um, but uh, I want to give both of you an opportunity and John, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, just let the folks know if they want to reach out to you or if they want to uh, 
uh, follow you in any way? How can they go about doing that? And then, Pete, I'll let you go. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Ted. And, Pete, thank you. I've enjoyed, as always, um, being on the show with you. Um, you can reach me. One of the uh, easiest ways to follow me is on Facebook. Um, I spell my name J-O-N, so it's John Decker Golf Instruction. Uh, you can like that. I have a lot of my videos on there. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, I'm now on staff with GolfSwing.com, and I've got 120 videos that I've filmed since September that are on on the website. Uh, and it's GolfSwing.com forward slash John Decker, and John Decker is just one word. Uh, and then my book, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, uh, you can you can uh, get that on Barnes and Noble and Amazon websites. Perfect, uh, and thank you, John, as always for uh, for coming on the show. I always enjoy it. Um, Pete, what about you? The folks want to reach out to you, or or what's uh, what's happening in in Pete's world? Well, again, you know, thanks, Ted, and and thanks to you, John. I always enjoy uh, chatting with you when we're on here. Um, they can reach me at plainsimplegolf.com. It's P L A N E is the plane. Plainsimplegolf.com. Well, uh, everything's out there. We're we're uh, working on some some new ventures and and new things. And so, if you pay attention to the website, you'll be able to see the announcements for all those things that are coming up. Um, getting ready to do a whole bunch of research um, coming up here uh, this fall, and I think it's going to be some interesting stuff that we're going to be putting out there. Um, and uh, I think some things that are going to open some eyes for you know what really is going on and what should happen. And so it's going to be some interesting stuff. It's going to be fun for me, too, because I, I really enjoy doing all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, any of the updates are always out there on, on Plains of Golf. And, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, you can find me out there as well. Perfect. And just on a side note, Pete, real quick, because um, I, I really haven't had a chance to talk to you much about it, and we'll, we'll talk another time personally. But um, I just want to give a quick plug and a quick shout-out. Of course, uh, Pete sent me um, a, uh, a simple swing repeater training brace, to, uh, to test out, and I have done that, and uh, it is a fantastic product. Uh, so go to plainsimplegolf.com. You definitely want to order this. If you're uh, wanting to work on your game and learning how to do some things right, this is a great product um, that he's been selling for a while, and uh, he knows his stuff. So, uh, Pete, thank you for, for sending that out. I didn't get a chance to, to mention it earlier, but um, for the folks listening out to the, the show, go to plainsimplegolf.com and definitely uh, click on and order one today because you're going you're gonna, to uh, see some great improvement in your game. Uh, thank you, Pete, for doing that, for sending me one. Yeah, All right, guys. Yeah, thanks, Dad. Um, appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, guys, for, for joining me on the Coach's Corner panel tonight, and I look forward to having you guys on again on uh, the next time. So have a great weekend, and uh, keep doing the great stuff that you're doing. Uh, you guys are, are fantastic, and I enjoy having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Always a, always a pleasure. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. That was my very special uh, Coach's Corner panel tonight, John Decker and Pete Buchanan. Uh, as always, uh, enjoy having those uh, guys on the show. Do a fantastic job, as all of the panelists do, of course, but uh, these guys uh, always uh, manage to bring their best each and every time, and as I uh, have said so many times in the past, it's uh, certainly not always easy when you're in this profession uh, to just be able to, uh, you know, head home or, or uh, back to the office or what have you after you've been working all day uh, helping the folks uh, improve their golf game and then have to do an hour uh, broadcast um, after work. So sometimes it's not always easy, so I appreciate them giving of their time. 
Um, just a, a quick note before I um, introduce tonight's uh, guest. And uh, just to remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. Uh, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live is the main link. And you can catch me here uh, every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. Uh, you can also uh, visit that link anytime, actually, and you can scroll down to the on-demand section and uh, listen to it when it's convenient for you. Or you can also check it on some of the other social media platforms like iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, and TuneIn.com. And again, just type in Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the respective pages there. And you can listen under uh, those different uh, social media platforms. Uh, you can also get updates on uh, other social media as well, Facebook.com, uh, Twitter, and uh, LinkedIn as well. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck, CEO, CEO is in capital letters. Uh, get uh, updates there. Uh, also on the uh, uh, primary Facebook page, uh, which is Golf Talk Live blog. Make sure you add blog on there, and uh, you can see who's going to be coming up uh, each and every week, uh, not only on the Coach's Corner panel, but also my special guests. And uh, also on LinkedIn under my personal name, which is Ted Odorico, and it's O-D-O-R-I-C-O is the correct spelling. Uh, you can follow me there, or you can follow me on my personal Facebook page as well. Uh, you're welcome to do that. Um, my next guest, of course, was on uh, this past October, and uh, I wanted to have him back on again. He's just uh, literally a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, of course, I'm talking about A.J. Bonner. Uh, he's the head teacher professional at A.J. Golf School. Let me just tell you a little bit about him, and then when he's uh, ready, we'll uh, we'll bring him on. Uh, A.J., of course, is uh, uh, in his early 70s, uh, married to his lovely wife, uh, Ethel, uh, for 50 years with two sons and four grandsons and a granddaughter. Uh, he's played golf for 65 years and been teaching uh, teacher professional for 49 years. He played four years uh, college golf at Kent State University, and he was the men's and women's golf coach at Bowling Green State University from 1977 to 1984. Uh, he's also the uh, golf director at the San Diego Golf Academy for uh, 10 years from 85 to 94, and of course the author of AJ Reveals the Truth About Golf uh, book and DVD series. Uh, currently he's teaching, uh, conducting AJ Golf School at Morgan Run Club and Resort in Rancho Santa Fe, California. Uh, he's my special guest tonight, and as I said, when he uh, uh, comes on board, I will bring him on. Um, just a quick note, as I said, uh, obviously I've been off for a couple of weeks, and uh, just coming back on air uh, here actually this week on Tuesday on the uh, Women of Golf show, which of course I uh, co-host with uh, my good friend LPJ professional uh, Cindy Miller, uh, and then of course Legends Tour player. And uh, each week we, we uh, interview some great uh, up-and-comer uh, golfers from the uh, Symmetra Tour. Uh, we just had uh, Stephanie Kono from uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, of course, who won the um, uh, Symmetra Tour event just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she was on this past week. And uh, you can tune into that show as well. Go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash women of golf uh, to get that show. And that airs every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and of course, Golf Talk Live is every Thursday on the same network. Uh, from 6 to 8 Central. I see that AJ is ready, so let me bring out AJ, and uh, we'll have a great discussion tonight. Good evening, AJ, and welcome. Well, good evening, Ted. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well. Uh, that was perfect timing. I just managed to get a few uh, uh, quick little plugs in on the show, and uh, you're right, ready to go. So, um, Let's find how's, how's our um, connection? It's it's perfect. I can hear you great. Okay, good. Um, AJ, of course, uh, yeah, I had you on back in October, actually October 5th of last year, 
uh, was the first time that we ever uh, got a chance to talk and and uh, we connected a little while ago and and I uh, wanted to have you back on because there's just really so much knowledge that you have amassed over the years of teaching that I think is just something that we want to continue uh, to share not only with my audience but with all of the many golfers out there as well so let me ask you this I want you to go back uh, a little bit in time if you will when you first uh, I guess, for lack of better words, were bitten by the bug uh, in golf, and you decided this is something that I want to do. What was that? What did that look like for you? What was your um, entryway into the golf industry? Well, first of all, it, it all started when I was about nine years old, and I hit a, a six iron that crushed, and I said, I want to do that the rest of my life. <laughs> it was such a great shot that I had never hit before. I had never done one of those. I had never felt that. And it's that it turns out to be the way you're supposed to use the club and get it to make those, that feel that you'd love to have on those shots. When you hit them, you go, I don't care. I loved it. It was, I got crushed it. So it was a, it was yeah, a very and, interesting thing then. And I was, again, I, I, I just went nuts from that point on and never stopped. And I think that that is really something that, really brings a lot of people back. I mean, we all, I don't care who you are, you know, we all struggle with our golf game here and there, but I think it's those, those pure shots that brings us back and keeps us, you know, uh, going, if you will. And one right. of the interesting things about, about you, AJ, is this, is you really break down um, not so much just the golf swing, but an understanding of why the ball does what it does, why the club does what it does, and how everything sort of connects properly. And I, I know it can be very technical for some people, but I think it's important as well for people to understand. So the first thing I want to ask you, um, and, and sure. these are some of the points, of course, that you sent over, is um, I want you to talk about the transfer of energy and impact and why some of the, and this was a very interesting topic, by the way, why the tour players move uh, the top of the club face forward faster than the bottom of the club face. Explain first off what you mean by that and then how that works. Okay. Well, it is something that we've measured. It's a measured number. It isn't something we bought up on our on a day off somewhere. <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> First, 100% of the, tour, of the tour players that we measured when I was doing some work um, in the R&D department over tailor-made for them for um, education. But one of the things we found was 100% of the tour players, the top of the club face, that line from the toe to the heel, that top line is moving forward at a higher rate of speed than the bottom line, than the leading edge is when they hit the ball. Right. Now, that and would... As an athlete, what that would to would be a top spin. Mm-hmm. If you're a ping pong player, tennis player, you hit the ball with top spin, you feel the top of that racket going over the bottom, don't you? Right. As you're hitting up at right, it. Exactly. Thing, but you're hitting you're putting top spin on the ball. You're not putting underspin. And so one of the, the interesting um kind of the irony of all <laughs> this is that the club looks like it should slide under the ball with the loft on it, doesn't it? Right, it exactly. You've got a ball on the ground, tight, tight on the ground, and you've got this lofted thing. You, you need to slide it somehow underneath the south pole a little bit as you hit it. And that's 180 degrees wrong. It isn't a little bit wrong. It's 180 degrees wrong. And the reason it is is because when you, if, if you were to shoot a golf ball into a club face horizontally, 
Yep. There's, there's a law of physics that says the angle of deflection is equal to the angle of incidence. That's a law of physics. If I throw a golf ball on a hard surface, on a concrete surface at 45 degrees down, it bounces up at 45 degrees on the other side. That's the law of physics. Right. Right. We didn't invent it. That's just what we measured. Okay, we know that. And having that in mind, if I took a club face and held it up at my eye level, just looking at the club face, pointing toward the target, if I shot a golf ball horizontally into that, the ball doesn't bounce up off the club face perpendicular to the loft plane. It bounces up the same number of degrees it was below that when it comes up on the other side. So the ball always comes off higher than the loft on the club. It cannot do otherwise. So the ball always comes and off I think, higher than the loft on your golf club. Right. And, and this is why – let me just interrupt you real quick here because I want to make a point, and then I want you to respond to this. Uh, this is why I think a lot of amateurs that don't understand this try to scoop or help the ball up because they think that's what they've got to do. And really, the opposite is true, is that's exactly. why if you look at the, the tour players, that they're actually hitting down uh, on the ball and not – hitting up and, on the ball, obviously, the, with the exception right, of, of obviously, the driver. Well, we have, I have some really significant driver pictures of, uh, of uh, Rory McIlroy hitting the ball, and he doesn't swing up, and he t- takes the top over the bottom with the driver even. It was really fun to see. But the, um, the whole idea is that every single club in the bag has loft on it, including a putter, but we're not right. talking about that one right now. Well, every single club has loft. So it's the, the ball is going to bounce off your club face at a higher angle up than the loft that you can see when it happens. So the, cl- the ball always bounces up. You don't have to slide the club under and add loft to your club in order to hit the ball right. up in the air at all. The club is designed to hit it up. Your job, because of all that loft on it, your job is to get rid of as much loft as possible at impact so that now it's hitting what, what you're providing when you do that. You, know, you all know what a, 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 force ve- a force vector is. It's an arrow that indicates the direction of a force, okay? And yep. the length of the vector indicates the magnitude of the force. So if I have a little short arrow coming through a ball, there's not a lot of magnitude. There's just the, the forces coming on a straight line that way. But if I have a really long arrow diagramming it that way, I've got a lot of horizontal force going through the ball. Now, every club in your bag that you hit with a swing has loft on it and hits the ball up in the air. Well, that upward deflection robs you of distance. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Right. Because your eight iron doesn't go as far as your three would, right? Right, exactly. Primarily because of the amount of loft that's on there. The more loft, the higher it goes. And so the club is made to hit the ball up. Now, the distance between you and where your golf ball is and and the object you're going to hit to, it's the hole perhaps. The distance between there, between your ball and and the cup, is a horizontal function. 
the horizontal distance. I don't care if there's a hill and a valley in between it. The distance itself that it's going to fly through is a horizontal distance. That's how we measure mm-hmm. it. We need to be able to apply enough <laughs> horizontal force through the center of the ball to get it to go that far. Right. right. Every single club in the bag deflects the ball upward, <clears throat> steals that horizontal force from you, doesn't it? Right, exactly. Okay, so your job with that club, and this is what we found when we measured all these tour players over at Taylor Bean, I was in the R&D department there. They de-loft their clubs eight degrees routinely at impact. Over and over and over and over and over again. It was almost a universal number. They de-lofted all their clubs eight degrees. Even I remember uh, um, Steve Melnick was with his driver was 7.8 and 7.9 degrees de-lofted. Wow. Now, using the club in that fashion by leaning the face <laughs> forward is lengthening the horizontal vector through the center of the ball, isn't it? Right. Right. Regardless of what club you have. If you make the top of the face go forward and de-loft, you are increasing the horizontal vector that's going through the center of the ball, aren't you? Well, exactly. If Yes, if you add loft as you're hitting it, there's two things that are going on. The first thing is you're, the face is backing up, the leading edge moving forward, but the face backing up to add loft is a bunt effect. Or in a tennis racket, if you drop the face back and hit a little drop volley, you drop the top of the racket back. Boom, just to get it over the net, then it, then it dies, doesn't it? Yep. So, so anytime you take your club face and you make the leading edge be the fastest thing on the face of the club, meaning it's going forward at a higher rate of speed than the top edge of the club face, <laughs> Club face is actually, as it's moving toward the ball, the face is angularly backing up from the back, from the back of the ball, isn't it? Yes. The, the hitting surface is backing up, and that in in uh, baseball is a bunt, isn't it? When the when the bat backs up at impact. Yes. Yep. Isn't that a bunt? That means you drop the yes. bat back as it hits you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the other thing, the other thing you can do with a baseball bat is hit a check swing, right? Where the handle and the and the barrel of the bat are both moving virtually the same speed, right? Right. Check swing. And the other way, the the third thing you can do with that baseball bat is you can hit a home run or a line drive by making the barrel of the bat roll past the handle at some point. Correct. Right. So the barrel of the bat is going faster than the handle. The check swing, the barrel, and the handle are going the same speed, and the bunt, the ba- the barrel is moving slower than the handle. Right? Yep. Okay. So those are the three things that your club face can do. So the club face on every golf club is the barrel of your bat. We've cut the handle off because we don't need it behind the shaft there. We just cut it off. So we have this face with our shaft down in it. And if we take that face and bring it into the ball and back it up by adding loft to it, even though we keep it square, 
we add loft to it, we are bunting the ball vertically with the club face, are we not? That's correct. The face is backing up, absorbing the impact. So you're going to hit a shorter shot, are you not, if you do that? No matter how fast fast you move the bottom edge of the club face forward, if it's going faster than the top of the club face, you are losing distance, aren't you? Of course you are, yes. You're losing your horizontal force through the center of the ball that makes it go a long way. You're now getting a deflected shot upward, which reduces your horizontal force vector dramatically. Hmm. So when we measured this <laughs> stuff and we found that 100% of the tour players deal off their club eight degrees at impact, you know, it was eight, 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 seven, eight, 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 nine, eight, 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 nine, eight, 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 seven, the shot after shot after shot, it was de-lofted that much. So that would be the same as taking an eight iron, sitting it on the ground, and put a six iron next to it. And if you lean the eight iron forward, you lean the face forward so that it's a six iron face. In other words, the face is the same loft as your six iron when the shaft is is even with the club head on the six iron, but you're now leaning the shaft of the eight iron past that shaft on the six iron. When you get it to the same loft as the six iron, that's an eight degree D loft because that eight iron has eight degrees more loft than the six iron. There's basically generally four degrees between each club. Right. In loft. So if I take that eight iron and I lean it forward into a six iron, people say, oh, I'm cheating if I do. They made the club with that much loft on No, listen, I'm take take your time here. When we look <laughs> at that tool and take it out of our bag, we will tend to talk about it this way. We will say, well, that's how much loft they built into this eight iron. That's how much loft I should hit it. And that means I should have it catch up to the handle in my hands at impact and throw that club head as fast as I can to that point so that my impact would be handle and club head even with one another at the moment of impact. Mm-hmm. And that's the single biggest picture I see among students that I've taught for 51 years now. I have seen Let that, me ask that you whole a- idea. Yes, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, finish your thought. Go finish your thought. Well, what I was going to say was that, that this idea of them getting it to the even with the handle the impact so there's no D loft on it. That's the universal motion that the people listening now are thinking must be the right way because they made it with that much loft. That's how much loft we should hit it with. When the fact is they made right. it with eight degrees too much loft so that when we lean the face forward, one of the great advantages that gives us is it puts the leading or the handle of the club out in front. And you'll notice if you do that, that your left wrist is not broken. It's bowed forward when you do that. If you leave the club back where the ball is and lean it forward, your left wrist will be bowed, will it not? Yes. Okay. Now, that bowed wrist simply means the integrity of the long arm coming from the club head up the shaft, up your forearm, up your, your upper arm, and into your neck. The integrity of that long arm is retained. As soon as you flex the left wrist forward, hinge it forward to try to make the club head go faster underneath the ball, you now have shortened the club the, the club you're hitting it with by one half. 
In other words, you're hitting it with a half the length arm compared to when you have your lean forward eight degrees. Now, what's significant about that? Well, hang in there with me on this one. This gets a little technical, and I do it with all my right. students because it's, it's understandable. It's understandable. <laughs> there is a, there's an object called a moment arm, and you know that moment of inertia is talked about, MOI is talked about of the, uh, the club yep. head, where, you know, how long the moment of inertia arm is and so on, right? How great right. the moment of inertia is. Inertia, just the regular inertia, is defined as the ability of an object to resist an acceleration. That's what inertia is. So if I have a bowling ball, 16-pound ball, sitting on a hard surface, and I push it to get it started, it's hard to start because it weighs 16 pounds, right? Right. Right. Compared to a one-pound ball that I put there, that would be easy for me to start, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the other half of that is that once that bowling ball is moving, it's harder to stop than the one-pound ball, isn't it? So that's, the, that's what inertia is, the ability of an object to resist acceleration, both the starting acceleration and the decelerating of it at the <laughs> other end, for instance. Okay? Mm-hmm. The ability of an object to resist acceleration. Moment of inertia is defined as the ability of an object to resist angular acceleration. Here's why. There's a thing called a moment arm. It's an engineering concept that is used in so many things. Um, and what it really is, if you look at a clock face that has an arm, you know, has the the uh, arrows on it, the minute hand and the, and the hour hand. A moment arm is any length arm of any material, even a piece of rope. If I'm holding on to a piece of rope that's one foot long mm-hmm. and it's hanging straight down, that's a moment arm. If I leave it there, that, that rope rotates around where I'm holding it with my thumb and forefinger in front of me, doesn't it? If I move the bottom of the rope, it now moves through angular space, doesn't it? It doesn't move in a line. Right. Because it moves right. around where I'm holding it, right? Yep. Yeah. If I put a 16-pound ball on that one-foot piece of rope, and I move it back and then move it forward, it will rotate around where I'm holding it, won't it? Yes. If I move it fast enough. Now, that means that the object is moving through angular space, through those 360 degrees of angular space on the circle, right? Mm -hmm. Any part of that Mm -hmm. is moving through angular space. It's not moving in a linear fashion the way the bowling ball rolling on the bowling alley does. That's linear force. <laughs> so if the way you calculate, now just stay with me on this one. This, the way you calculate moment of inertia is you multiply the weight times the length of the moment arm squared. So if I want to figure out what the, the moment of inertia is of this 16-pound ball, I multiply 16, the weight, times one foot squared, which is one foot. One times one is one, isn't it? Right. So I have one times 16 pounds. I get 16 pound feet squared moment of inertia. Okay, that's how you write it up. If I take a one pound ball and I put it on a one foot rope, multiply one pound times one squared or one times one times one, which is one pound foot squared moment of inertia. So if I hold on to the 
to the rope and I swing the, 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 the uh, one-pound ball back and let it go, it has a certain inertia, doesn't it? Yes. It right. wants to keep moving. But compared to that 16-pound bowling ball, it's not even close, is it, in terms of what that, uh, no. what that does. Now, if mm-hmm. I take the one-pound ball and I put it on a four-foot piece of rope, I now have a one-pound ball on a four-foot piece of rope. I multiply the length of the moment arm and square it, right? I square right. that number. So I've got four-foot rope. Four times four is 16. So now when I put a one-pound ball on the end of a four-foot rope, I have 16 pound-feet squared moment of inertia in that ball, don't I? Right. One pound times 16, or four squared. So that's identical moment of inertia to a 16-pound ball on a one-foot rope. Curious. Very interesting. If I, if I, put, Let, if I put the 16-pound ball on a four-foot rope, I now have 256 pound-feet squared moment of inertia. Because I have 16 pounds times a four-foot rope, or four squared is 16. 16 times 16 is 256. So the lengthening of the moment arm has an enormous effect on the impact, does it not? Of course, yes. You start to see that when I take that one-pound ball, and now I have a 16-pound-foot squared moment of inertia in that thing. It's like a 16-pound bowling ball hitting my 1.62-ounce golf ball. And we have gotten so wrapped up and so tuned into the concept of club head speed is the secret to distance that so many golfers that I see on my lesson tee are trying to throw the club head faster than their handle, right, to get extra club head speed down there. Right. Right. When they do that, they have just shortened the moment arm to a point between their two hands down to the club. So if I take the hands and I move them ahead and don't let the club head pass, and I have the face leaned forward those eight degrees, mm-hmm. the integrity of the moment arm starts at the club head and comes all the way up my bowed wrist up to my left shoulder into my neck. It's a seven-foot-long moment arm when I do that. It goes from the club head up, my, mm. up into my hand, into my forearm, and my upper arm into my neck, Okay. It's a seven-foot-long right. moment arm. So if I have a one-pound head on my golf club, just for the sake of the math, and I have a seven-foot-long moment arm, I, I take the one-pound head times the length of the moment arm squared, I have seven times seven, or 49-pound feet hitting the ball, don't I? Right. right. 49-pound feet squared moment of inertia hitting that ball. I got a 49-pound club head bashing on that little 1.62-ounce thing. If, on the other hand, as I come down, I throw the club ahead faster than the butt of the club, the moment arm now starts between my right and left hand and goes down to the club head, and it's, a, it's only three and a half feet long. So the one pound head times three and a half feet is 12 and a quarter pound feet squared instead of 49. So the idea of thinking that club head speed is the secret, secret, secret. Now, I'm not saying speed doesn't matter. But if you try to make the club head go faster and destroy the integrity of the long moment arm, you didn't gain anything. You actually lost quite a bit. And and this goes. Let me let me uh, inject this for just a second, AJ, um, because you know 
it's it's interesting to to hear explained that way because a lot of people might be you know I'm sure there's a lot of people probably scratching their head and say well okay I, I don't understand exactly uh, everything that that's been explained but if you stop and and break it down as you have it makes a lot of sense because if somebody is trying to force the club head faster as you suggested then and the handle, now right. yeah then the handle or catches up to the handle um mm-hmm. at the incorrect time then they're actually going to lose distance and this is why you see so many of our amateur golfers out there that lose a lot of distance because like you right. said they're not they're not uh, increasing their their MOI they're fo- they're Right. Doing the opposite, they're actually decreasing it. So, by, how do we by, almost it, by four times almost a fourth of what it might be? Right, and this is so why more often. Right, this is why often you see a lot of amateurs when they swing easier at the ball. Yes. More often than not, they'll get better distance right. because the club right. has time to actually react the way it's intended to react. But well, then as soon as they start to speak, hands. right, exactly. It didn't pass their hands. So if you're working with a student, is- AJ, yep. yes. yeah, if you're working with a student that is doing it incorrectly, how do you get yes. them, uh, once you've explained to them what you've just explained right. to us here, how do you now retrain them to be able to swing through the ball correctly in order to mm-hmm. capitalize on what you've just talked about? Perfect. Perfect question, right? I'll put the ball on a tee about a half inch off the ground and give them their pitching wedge. And I asked them to hit the ball as low as they can hit it with the pitching wedge. I said, where would your hands be at impact if you had to play the ball here up in the middle of your stance, not off your back foot, middle of your stance, tee right. up half an inch off the ground. And you had to take this golf club and hit the ball as low as you could hit it with that club. Where would your hands be at impact? Well, they go out forward, right? Right. And virtually 100% of the people that I asked to do that know how that would work. They know that. Mm -hmm. They don't get even. They get further ahead to get the, you know, to hit it, right, with less loft on the club. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to hit it as low as you can hit it with that club. And I put face tape on, and then we do that. And when they hit it in the middle of the face and have it way out ahead, they can't believe how high and far the ball went. Because they didn't do anything to hit the ball up in the air when they did this activity, did they? No, not at all. They just drove it forward. The loft on the golf club did its job of hitting the ball higher than the loft that's on there. In other words, the ball always comes off higher than the loft that's written on that club. Always. Hmm. So when you lean the face forward, you're not going to drive the ball down, which is what that feels like, like a ping pong topspin, right? Right. And I, and I asked people that are ping pong players or tennis players, and I said, you know, you know how to put topspin on a ping pong ball? And they go, oh, yeah, this way. They do that. I said, okay, let me give you this wedge. We'll put the ball up on this tee, and I want you to hit this next shot with topspin. I don't want it to go up in the air. And... <laughs> The remarkable thing happens. They go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, did you did did that look like a topspin shot? No. Went up high in the air. I mean, wait a minute. How'd it feel? Oh, it felt great. I said, yeah, I know. It's kind of cool. 
So the idea is that <laughs> understanding how the tool actually makes the ball work is how we get my, my father was a machinist and a tool maker. And he grew up making anything out of anything. He could make he knew tools, he built tools, he made tools, he invented tools, and he worked his whole life in that arena. <laughs> he said, you know, the tool gives you an advantage. If you don't use that advantage, then you lose the advantage that the tool's supposed to give you. Right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the idea is that every tool gives you some mechanical advantage. And when you take that not with that wedge that we're talking about on this exercise where you tee the ball up a half inch off the ground and just try to drive it forward with top spin. Forward with top spin. When most people do it first, they hit it thin at first because they're not throwing it down under the ball. And the club's up a little higher than they're used to, so they have to aim a little lower and hit the equator with line five on the on the on the face, right? Right. right. You take the fifth line up and try to drive that into the equator of the ball. That's what I ask them to do. And they're amazed at how far the ball goes with no effort. Now, when I give them a little less lofted club, if I give them a little less less lofted club like a seven iron, all of a sudden they don't believe me anymore and they try to go under it with that one. (laughs) And it isn't anything with a swing. It's having their idea about how to use the tool. Right, and this is something interesting, AJ, um, that I want to point out, uh, you know, because when you explained earlier about, you know, de-lofting the club, an 8-iron really is, is like a 6-iron when the tour pros are using right. it. This is why right. people are amazed when they hear, um, you know, Tiger or, or Rory or somebody else out in tour hit their 8-iron, you know, 165 yards. Yes, or 180, <laughs> or 180, or, or well, yeah, I'm, I was right. underselling it a little bit, well, but 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 you I understand know. what I'm talking about. This is this is why exactly. because really they're not hitting it with the same loft that the amateurs are hitting right. it with. They're hitting right. it with a six they're iron loft as opposed to an eight iron loft. Right, and they're also when they're doing that, they have the long moment arm from the club head up the shaft, up the left forearm, into the left shoulder and the neck, a totally unbroken line with no wrist hinge. As soon as you hinge the left wrist, you now cut the moment arm in half in length. And so when you cut the moment arm in half, you reduce the moment of inertia to a fourth of what it was. Because it goes down at the square root, just as it goes up at the square when you lengthen it. So you reduce this thing dramatically when you throw the club head and try to make the leading edge go fastest. Single biggest mistake I've seen in 50 years of teaching golf, making the bottom of the club go faster than the top. It seems right. If I'm going to get it off this ground, I got to slide that little bit of thing underneath that right in there underneath that where the South pole is a little bit. It's the universal mistake in golf. But the fact is when you take the top over the bottom, top of the face going faster than the bottom that leading edge does go down in there but it's a different 180 degree different way of using the face when you use it by trying to slide the leading edge under the south pole of the ball which is the probably the single biggest picture that 
90% of all golfers have. Slide the club under the ball. Slide it under the ball. Get I, I didn't get the ball up today. I couldn't get under it. I couldn't get under it. Oh. <laughs> How about if you hit it with topspin? What? I drive it in the ground? I'm not going to do that. But you see, that's what happens. So this right. is why when I do that half high tee with the, with the wedge and have them hit topspin, see how low you can hit it. And I mean it goes high and far. It's just amazing, and I can't believe they can't hit it. I said, now you understand. This is the way the tool is made to be used, not by sliding the leading edge under, but by taking the top of the face over. And the, making the bottom go faster than the top the leading edge go faster than the top is a 180 degree mistake. Yeah. When we measure these tour guys, the top of the face is going forward faster than the bottom of the club. So that's a 180 degree difference in a great shot and a bad shot. Well, if I want you're using a tool, right. 180 degrees incorrectly. How good are you going to be as a craftsman with that tool? If you're using the tool backwards, <laughs> Sorry. Not very, yeah, not very well. <laughs> no. Let me ask you, AJ, because um, uh, uh, I, I want to give you a chance to, to try and get uh, uh, some more in tonight. Um, what is the difference between the engine of the golf swing and the tra- transmission of the golf swing? Explain what each of them are. Well, it's easier to, well, first of all, everybody feels like their body is the engine, which it is. I mean, that's what creates the body and your hands and arms and the whole, all the muscles and the skeleton and all that sort of thing. That's your engine. That moves the club, does it not? You're right. You, you are the object that grabs hold of that grip end of the club and you move that forward with your hands and arms and body, right? Mm-hmm. Body and arms are the engine. The club face is the transmission. It transmits to the ball whatever you can apply and ter- create in terms of force, doesn't it? Yes. If you pound a nail with a hammer, if you pound a nail with a hammer, the hammerhead is the transmission. It transmits through the nail force you created from your engine. Is that fair? Yep. yep. That makes sense. A perfect sense. Okay. Okay. So the face of your club is your transmission. And the job of that transmission is to make is to drive the most force through the center of the ball horizontally. That's your job, to apply that much force horizontally through the ball. Your, try, your job is to get the most. You're the only one that can produce this by using the tool leaning the face forward, though, right? Leaning the face forward as you hit it increases the horizontal force through the center of the ball and diminishes the upward force. Is that fair to say? Right. That's ex- exactly right. Yes, okay. So there we are. Now, this, when you take this golf club, then, your two hands – are what you use to apply the club to the ball. Okay? Mm -hmm. You don't apply the club to the ball with your hip. And that brings us to this very important issue about motor learning and how human beings are designed to learn motor skills. And I didn't invent this. This is good science. When little boys are born, the first six years of the, our life is the gross motor development period. If you're not Michael Jordan by the age of six in, in running and jumping and jogging and moving inside or whatever, if you're not Michael Jordan by then, you're never going to be. Because at age six, 
all of our gross motor programs, running, jumping, climbing, doing the things we do with our big muscles, right? Yeah. All of those things, all of those programs are written and put on a ROM chip in our head, read-only. After the age of six, you virtually cannot write over it. You are who you are. You remember in your neighborhood, if you were the fastest guy in your neighborhood, you were the fastest guy every day, weren't you? You didn't have somebody to right. come up all of a sudden and be first and then back to fourth. It didn't right. happen that way. And that's the gross motor stuff, the runners, the running muscles, those big muscles. So the big muscles, the gross motor programs, are written and put on this ROM chip in our head. So when we want to hit something, our body knows how to make it do that. But what we do still have is our fine motor system. And the biggest majority of our fine motor system, from the elbow to the fingertips, your two hands and forearms, approximately 35% of our brain is allocated to our hands. How's that? Smartest thing on our body, basically. They are not unreliable. They are the most reliable thing. And here's another way to look at it because of this. Every joint in your body, take your elbow for a minute, every joint in your body, has little dots around the joint called proprioceptors. Now, proprio is a Greek root word for self or self-perception, okay? Proprioception. Mm-hmm. Proprioceptors measure force directionally, so they tell our brain where the force is coming from on our joints and our arms, right, our legs and our body. So these proprioceptors are all over the body in the joints, Now, in a joint the size of the elbow, if you make a fist, that fist is almost as much as big as your elbow, right? They're Mm -hmm. they're, they're similar size. The elbow has one joint with its proprioceptors around it, okay? Mm -hmm. The fist has 14 different joints in it. The hand has 14 different joints. Now, think of the data coming in to your brain from those little dots around each one of those that tells your brain where the... The proprioceptors measure force directionally. They tell your brain where the force is coming from. And that tells you where you are in space. One of the forces that acts on us every day is gravity, isn't it? Right. Gravity is vertical, isn't it? Every time. Mm-hmm. It's always vertical. So we know from our proprioceptive senses in our body, our proprioceptors, we know where we are relative to the earth and where gravity is. And it's, we know that we're upright and we're falling off one way. We know we're going down. And so the, the proprioceptors tell us from gravity where we are as a kind of a a benchmark or a a home plate place, right? That's where we are. Mm -hmm. When I take my hands, my two hands have 24 different joints. Each of them is loaded with proprioceptors telling my brain where they are in space at speeds. That's how we learn with these amazing pieces of equipment that our hands are. And there's nothing on your body, even your feet, that are as extraordinarily gifted with this as your hands are. Amazing. So we know where our hands are in space. That's why we can build buildings and pound nails and do all the stuff that we learned how to do when our, our um, 
ancestors were learning to do things. So here we have, from the elbows to the fingertips, what is now random access memory. These are designed to learn new skills every day and to refine the ones we already know and make them finer, playing an instrument, playing a guitar, playing a drum. You don't play your drums anywhere but below the elbows, do you? No. That's where you play everything, below the elbows, because that's where all your brains are. And the idea is that we can train these hands to do things. And when we do, the big muscles on the ROM chip up there know how to support whatever we do with our hands. The big muscles don't run the hands. The hands run the big muscles. That's the science. I don't care what sport you're playing. The hands run the body. The body responds to what you're going to do with your two hands and forearms. If you shake, if you put your left, your excuse me, your right hand out like you're going to shake hands with your elbow bent, okay, and your hands up mm-hmm. waist high, fingers are pointed away from you. You're going to shake hands with someone. If you take that right hand and you look at the wrist hinge that's there, if you take your index finger and shove it through the wrist horizontally between your hand and the and your forearm, okay, on your right. Take your left index finger like you're going to put a, a rod through there, okay, where the wrist is, horizontally. Mm-hmm. Your hand your right. hand will rotate down, down and up around that axis, won't it? Yes. Your fingers will go toward the ground, and the thumb will come up, right? Yep. Around that axis. That's, that's the X axis. There's X, Y, and Z axes. The y-axis is the vertical one that goes down from the base of your thumb through your wrist and out the bottom when your hand's shaking hands. Mm-hmm. That's a vertical axis. And now your palm can flex in towards your belly. Okay? Right. That's palmar, that's palmar flexion. Or it can go the other way, and the back of your hand can go almost to a 90-degree angle cupping it, can't it? Yes. Okay. So this moves almost 150 degrees, 160 degrees, okay, around that vertical axis as you hold your hand out there. Now the third Mm -hmm. axis, the Z axis, starts at your fingertips and comes up your forearm to your elbow. And your thumb will turn around that axis, won't it? So your palm is to the ground. Right. right. It's turning around that third axis, the Z axis, and that's called pronation and supination. So we have six motions that the hand can do. They're a brilliant piece of equipment, unbelievably able to do the most amazing things. So we have two hands that do that. So we can go through all three dimensions of space and do whatever we need to teach our hands to do. The tool that we use gives us the guide on how to use our hands because we have to make the tool do something. It's our job to apply the tool correctly to the to the nail, if you will, right? right. My job with the hand is to apply the hammer to the nail. I don't work I don't work on my shoulder turn in order to pound a nail, do I? No. No. 
ever. You simply do it from below the elbow, do you not? Because that's, that's where correct, all the brains yeah. are, below the elbow, okay? When you bat in baseball, do you lock your left arm out waiting for the pitch? No. No. Never. It's bent 90 degrees, isn't it? Yes. Yep. And from there, the elbow leads, and you can kill the ball from there, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you stood at the baseball, if you stood at home plate waiting for a pitch and your left arm was straight, you wouldn't be there for long, would you? No. It would get you out of the, out of the game in a hurry, wouldn't it? Right. <laughs> The idea of of building force by having your hands farther away from your body doesn't fit. In other words, getting more width in the swing, if you will, by having that left arm go straight and be away Mm -hmm. from your hands, away from your chest. That seems to make a longer, a longer radius so that the speed will be greater out there. But that's not how the human body works. We get this elbow on our left arm that if we had it bent and leading forward as we came in like we would with a baseball bat, we have much more forearm speed to apply to the ball. So it's just, it, it, it does straighten out at some point, you know, right down there at the ball somewhere, but it isn't something we ever have to do. Point is, no, it's elbow centrifugal. Right, yeah, it'll, it'll go where force it's basically go. does it. it. It'll go. Yeah, maybe. There's also that idea that when you're out there, it's going to take that, that momentum of the club head down there may not all just be centrifugal, but it is part of the process. Okay. So now we take these, we we take this stick in our hand and I don't know if you've ever seen the drawing I've done on people's hands where the the club face sits on the, if they're a right-handed golfer, the palm of their right hand is the club face. Yes. The score, the scoring lines fit, fit across the bones of our, they don't fit parallel to the, fingers the scoring lines they sit with the toe up and the heel is down by your little finger Mm -hmm. that's the way it fits on there so once you understand how you're holding a tool and how it's supposed to be applied and that it's supposed to be applied with your the top of the club leaning into the ball getting those eight degrees of d loft then you would never throw the club head and hinge your wrist to hit the ball would you if you're going to de-loft it when no. you hit it, you'd be leaving the club head behind, wouldn't you? That's the feeling you'd have. Right. And that bothers a lot That bothers a lot of people when they come to golf because they think they're not getting any club head speed if they do that. So they throw the club head as fast as they can make it go. But that's like some beginning carpenter trying to do something with a hammer and it's supposed to do. Okay? If you take If you take this golf club and throw the club head as fast as you can make it go, the bottom of the club face is traveling faster than the top, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yes. And that makes the face back up as it hits it, even though the bottom of the club's going forward. bottom of the club face is going forward. The face that's hitting the ball is backing up like a bunt, a vertical bunt. So no matter how fast you make the bottom of the club face go, you lose distance. Hitting the ball with the top of the face leaning over the, the ball, leaning over the bottom of the club as it hits the ball, like a topspin in ping pong, making that topspin feel. The remaining loft, or the residual loft that's on the club, hits it up in the air, not you. You're driving it forward and leaning the face forward like it feels like a topspin to you. The fact is the ball's coming off higher than the loft shows on there, and it goes up in the air. 
you didn't have to make the, the leading edge go faster than the top of the club to hit it up in the air. As a matter of fact, you had to do the opposite. The opposite? The opposite. Oh, my Lord. How could I be that wrong? <laughs> well, we've all been there. Well, I mean, I grew up in golf. I tried right. it. I did it. I did all that stuff. And when I finally found out that the, you know, the impact and all the sort of things with the club uh, mattered, that this is the way the club has to be used to have the force, then it made a huge difference. So the idea of taking the club and applying it to the back of the ball with the top of the face leaning forward as you hit it means your hands would be ahead of the ball at that point, wouldn't they? Right. They wouldn't be even with the ball. They would have gone past the ball. means you're de-lofting the club and turning it, turning the face down or what feels like a top spin. But when you do that exercise with a pitching wedge, with the ball teed up a half inch off the ground, you can try as hard as you want to to hit it with the middle of the face and have it go along the ground, like with topspin, or hit it with topspin where it goes up and flies down. If you hit it with the middle of the face, it has backspin every single time, and to huge amounts of it. You know, we talk about the, the, the uh, spin rate on the drivers now is under, a two, under 2,000 RPM with some of the guys now. Hmm. Well, you know what? You know, we used to do 2,400 RPM backspin with a driver for the other guys. That was really low for a long time, wasn't it? Right. 2,400 RPM, that's what they were looking for. 2,400 RPM is 40 revolutions per second. Think about that. 40 revolutions of backspin for one second. That's not a wow. little bit of backspin, is it? No, it's a lot. <laughs> yes. So you got to be careful with the, the numbers that you listen to and what people talk about and make sure your science is good, okay, because that's what uh, what we, we learned from our scientific education. I don't know if I've told you, but I, I graduated from Penn State's turf management program a long time ago, 63. Mm. And uh, my brother did too, and my brother Terry was the superintendent at Canterbury Golf Club for like 38 years. You're aware of Canterbury, are you not? Yeah, certainly am. Canterbury in Cleveland? Yes, one mm-hmm. of the great clubs. And he was there all those years. And when he retired in 2009, the USGA named him their USGA Green Section named him their man of the year. He was such hmm. a good superintendent. Wow. He did so many things that were so good. Well, anyway, one of the things we find out when we're in classes at Penn State, because he graduated from there but, uh, before I did. One of the things is causative agent. We took, we had two semesters of plant pathology, diseases of turf grass, okay? And we had to learn, that's how rigorous this program was. For instance, there is a fairly common disease of turf grass on a putting green called dollar spot. Silver dollar sized brown patch of grass, right? Dollar spot. Right. Right. And it's caused by a fungus. Now, it looks like it could just be a dry spot, right? So you go mm-hmm. over and you poke it yeah. with a pick and you pour some water down to green it up. Well, when you pour that water down there, you're feeding the fungus that's down there causing that. So now you have five new brown pot spots all around there. So you've activated the cause of the agent, haven't you? <laughs> hmm. 
and the causative agents. No, this is this was how rigorous that that class was, and this is fifty years ago for me, fifty plus. Um, the causative agent is a fungus called Sclerotinia homoeocarpa. And when we took our mm. tests every week, we take our tests on the new diseases that we learned, and we had to identify the disease by a lesion on the leaf of the grass plant. <laughs> and we had to know the genus and the species, the Latin genus and species, and the common name. And if any part of the answer was misspelled, the whole thing was wrong. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. There we go. The point is, you have to know, if you have a disease out on your greens, you have to know what is the causative agent. For dollar spot, it's sclerotinia moyocarpa, the fungus called that. That's its fungus. That's what causes the disease. If you get rid of the fungus, grass heals up. There. Mm-hmm. If you kill that nasty fungus, the causative agent, you get rid of it with a fungicide. You kill it, boom, it's gone. Now the grass heals itself back up. So the causative agent is such an important issue when you're dealing with uh, turf grass diseases and conditions. But if you look at what has come to golf, the causative agent that everyone thinks is the real causative agent, the golf swing, Mm -hmm. that it causes everything. When the fact is, it doesn't really cause anything. It's the result of using the club in a certain way. If I use right. the club to pound on something, my body knows how to take care of that, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. If I try to slide that club face under the ball, my body will simply help me do that. It'll stay back. My, you know, my head will stay back, and I'll go underneath it, and I'll keep my right shoulder low and slide under it, keep the weight on the back foot. The big muscles in the body that we talk about as part of the golf swing, the thing that makes the the whole thing happen, their job is to react to what you do with your two hands and the fine motor system. If you take the fine motor system, two-handed grip on the club, and you drive the ball forward, de-lofting the club, would your head fall backwards when you did that, or would it lean forward into it? Lean forward, of course. Of course. And the weight would shift, and everything would go over there, and you'd end up on your front foot with your head over your left foot. When Gary Player, in 1959, when he came over here, he won the British Open, as I recall. And he, that mm-hmm. gave him access to the tour in the United States. So he came over and started playing on the tour. And he was 30 yards short on the, off the tee with those other, those other guys that were out there from around here. And he was, at the time, the big bowed back swinger with the head over the rack, right foot, in a sense. Right? With mm-hmm. an arch in the back when, you hit, when you're done hitting it. And he came over here and he noticed that the guys didn't do that. So what he did was he took his head instead of leaning it back as he hit the ball, he leaned his head and shoulders into the ball and hit it and then stepped past the left foot because the weight had shifted over there finally. But that's where that step through came after he hit it because he, he, he grew up playing with the head hanging back at impact instead of leaning forward. And of course, once he did that, and the head and shoulders leaned into it, well, he became pretty tough, didn't he? Yeah, he, he increased his distance a lot, too, as I recall. No, you're exactly right. Um, 35 You know, what's interesting, H- oh, yeah, easy. 
um, you know, what's interesting, AJ, is, you know, is you've, you've given really a, a different perspective. You know, we hear a lot about the golf swing and we hear about, you know, how sure. to, uh, to, you know, impart backspin. And we hear all these different analogies, these different swing theories and methods that are being taught. Right. But what's, what's interesting about what you've, discussed here tonight and and i'm fascinated by it because that's that's why i was very quietly listening to what you had to say because a lot of people really don't understand how everything works they're told one thing or they're explained one thing but they don't really understand as you said the science behind it and i like the fact that you're giving us really the nuts and bolts of the machine if you will or of the tool and how it works and why it does and and it's it goes into really in golf, excuse me, um, with cause and effect. When you understand how something works and the causes and the effects it has on it, it's easier to make yes. an adjustment, if you will, in order to overcome exactly. um, a negative result. Right. And this is something right. that I think needs to be taught more um, in the industry. I know it was I, I taught many years ago, but I think they've gotten away from a lot of that. I, Would you agree? Yes, I've actually come to call the uh, using the idea that the golf swing, there's a golf swing. If you learn to do it perfectly, you hit perfect shots. That's the logic. Right. Use. There's a golf swing. Learn to do it perfectly, you hit perfect shots. Now, that's logical, but it isn't true. <laughs> right. But just because it's logical, right. everybody believes it. <laughs> right. It's like saying right, all dogs exactly. are collies. That's a dog, therefore it's a collie. <laughs> See, that's logically correct. It just isn't true because the premise wasn't true. Anyway, point being, that when you, yeah. when you take this idea of using the tool to hit the ball and learn how to use it, mm-hmm. your body already knows how to take care of you. There is no swing to learn. When you take that, that handle of the club out ahead and take the top of the face over the bottom of the face, like you're trying to hit top spin, mm-hmm. right. the ball jumps up so high, it goes so far, it's scary. Now, Wherever the face, in a sense, this is, and we've got the five ball flight laws, except for the one of them that Gary talked about wasn't true, which is to say that the path causes the initial direction, which is <clears throat> Anyway, the, the face of the club, basically thinking this way, wherever the ball started, what direction it started in, that's where the face was looking when the ball left. Okay? Mm-hmm. If it's open to the right, the ball is going to leave to the right. If it's closed over to the left, it's going to leave to the left when it leaves the club face. Okay? So right. anywhere down there near that center part, you know, center part where it's fairly squared up, okay, as you're taking that top over the bottom, you're going to be able to hit it nicely straight. And I had this question to ask you about it. We got time? We okay? Yeah, we've we got okay? a, just literally a moment, but, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say that. If you if you swing a club head straight down the line at the ball, how much side spin can you put on the ball going straight through the center of the ball? Um, none. None. So swinging the club straight down the target line allows you to hit the ball with very little side spin, doesn't it? Correct. Yeah, that's right. And if you have the top, and if you have the top of the face going over the bottom of the face as you're doing that, you are hitting a wonderful golf shot. So just those two pictures I want you to have before I go. Okay. Perfect. Well, AJ, I got to say, you know, it's interesting because, you know, as I said, you know, we hear so much going on in the industry 
about different methods and, as I said a moment ago, right. swing theories. And it's added to right. a lot of confusion in this industry. And you know right. this as well as I do. And, you know, I've, I've seen uh, many of your videos, and I'm, I'm very familiar with, with your approach to the game and your understanding of the game. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you back on is to, well, that's and that's nice. why I really let you, yeah, why I let you go um, the way I have this evening at, with very little interruptions, because I wanted people to really understand the message that you're trying to get, because there's a lot of frustrated people out there, unfortunately, uh, in this industry, not only in the industry, right. but on the other side, right. Um, right. that are struggling with their game because they don't understand, as you pointed out, how the tool actually works. And I think right. once people understand that, um, how it actually works and how the ball will respond uh, with the tool being right. used correctly, they're going to have much more enjoyment and have fun in the game. And I want to give you an opportunity before we close off, because I know this is all in your, your DVD uh, series and, and you talk about all this in, in great detail. And this is definitely something that I want, uh, you know, people to get there. So can you explain to the folks how uh -huh. they can go, if they can, if it, is it still available, where they can go to get that? Um, because I, I think this is something that a lot of people need to get. It's real simple. Just go to on, online, go to ajgolf.com. Perfect. Perfect. It will come up, ajgolf.com. Perfect. It will lead you through. Well, I want to tell – yeah, I, I want to just say to, to those listening to the show tonight, um, go to ajgolf.com and order his DVD series because I guarantee you once you watch this, you'll have a much different understanding of how to play this game and once you do that and understand the correct movements and understand how and why things react the way they do, you'll be amazed at how much better of a player you'll become. AJ, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it more than I can tell you. I love being able to talk to this about, you know, I love being able to talk about this. It's, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, buddy. Not a problem. AJ, you're welcome back anytime, and I'm going to have you come back because I know there's some things we didn't get a chance to cover, um, right. but you got a lot of the important – you got the, a lot of the important out of it. Next time we're going to come back, and I want you to talk a little bit about putting. So I'm going to have you come back again before this, before this uh, season ends, and uh, we'll talk right. a little bit more. And anything, anything else you want to throw in there as well? Um, how's that sound? Okay, thank you. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Just call me. Perfect. Sounds good. AJ, thank you very much for being my okay, special right. guest tonight, and uh, I will be in touch with you soon. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it more than I can tell you. Thank you. Not a problem. Have a great evening. All right. That was my very special guest, AJ Bonner from the AJ Golf School. Uh, again, you go to ajgolf.com, and uh, I know we've run through air air time, so I'm on recorded time right now, but I just wanted to uh, again, thank uh, John Decker and Pete Buchanan from Coach's Corner uh, panel for joining me tonight. And, of course, my very special guest, A.J. Bonner. Uh, definitely a lot of great information. I know it was very, very technical, uh, and you really got to pay attention to it. But um, the man knows his stuff, and he's just a, a wealth of knowledge. And, and, again, I strongly suggest and urge anybody listening to the show tonight uh, to go to AJ, um, ajgolf.com 
and uh, get uh, your hot little hands on uh, his DVD uh, series. It's definitely well worth the, the money investment. Um, anyways, thank you for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's been a, a great, uh, a great, uh, interesting evening, and I will be next uh, back next week with another uh, great Coach's Corner panel, and my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper, son of legendary Billy Casper, is going to be joining me next week, so make sure you tune in for that. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend, and I will see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.